History happened everywhere. Out of office. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the Human League to my Lebanon. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. <laughs> I like that one. That's good. That's that's one for the oldies. <laughs> it is. It's one for people of a certain age. We are out of office at the moment, unavoidably detained, I'm afraid. But as ever, we will not let you go unentertained. We have something for you, an out of office episode in this case. So we pre dersolated and we got a subject of a negotiation in Lebanon during 1984. Just one year. So let's hope it's a good year and a good time. But why don't you tell us, Ryan, what we've got coming up? OK, Pete, well, look, in this week's out of office episode, you and I are going to be sliding into our leg warmers and putting on a mixtape of stories about negotiations in Lebanon during 1984. We're going to a crossroads of civilizations that predates the Bible. We're going to take a look at whether violence is a good negotiating tactic, and we're going to find out why asking a cowboy for help is a wasted endeavor. Welcome to the Pearl of the Middle East, the land of blue gold. Welcome to Lebanon. Well, I for one am very excited, Ryan, but why don't you kick us off and get us oriented as to where we are in the world? Where is Lebanon? Okay, well, it's officially called the Republic of Lebanon, but we're going to call it Lebanon for the sake of this episode. It's a country in West Asia. So where's that? Well, if you look at a map of Europe, head south to the Mediterranean Sea, then head east, you're going to find Lebanon located on the coast. It's sandwiched between Syria to the north and Israel to the south. It's a relatively small country, though, Pete. It covers around 10,000 square kilometres, that's around 4,000 square miles, which is roughly 230 times smaller than a France. Oh, that's tiny. Yeah, very small. Now, take a wander around the country and you're going to see it is a place of natural beauty. There are seaside plains, mountains running through the centre and a fertile valley known as the breadbasket of Lebanon, where you can find fruits and vegetables, opium poppies and cannabis. Yum! <laughs> All my favourite ingredients. <laughs> Very Moorish, some of those. <laughs> and of course, sprinkled throughout the country are the remains of ancient harbours, Roman ruins, medieval alleys and crusader castles. It's a truly incredible place for such a small little thing. There's a, there's a lot to go and see and do there. Beirut is the capital and the largest city. Tourism and banking are the significant parts of the economy. And uh, Lebanon has a population of around 7 million people, of which 60% are Muslim, 40% are Christian, which is a division that might give you an indication as to the shape of the country's politics. Yes, I'm sure we'll be discovering more about that in something I have to say. (laughs) I'm certain you will. (laughs) The uh, national symbol, Pete, it's the Lebanon cedar, which is a type of tree that can grow up to a thousand years old. It can get up to 130 feet tall, that's 40 metres tall. It's rot resistant, which is quite incredible, and so that makes it perfect for use in building ships and temples, a practice which has been in place since the most ancient times. And so important is this national symbol, it features in Lebanon's flag, in the centre, in fact, of the horizontal red, white and red bands. There's an unofficial flag too, though, which adds a yellow stripe to represent the golden sands of beaches. Now, the national 
anthem, Pete, is called Kaluna Il Watan, which means all of us for the homeland. And it was adopted in 1927 as a devotion to Lebanon and a hymn about endurance during times of hardship. It was composed by Rashid Nakhele, a Lebanese musician. The anthem became a symbol of unity and it sounds a little something like this. Yeah, I like it. It's marchy, it's punchy. Oh, I want to march to this so bad. Uh, do you want to definitely want to go parading across the parade ground, don't you? Not in the midday heat, though, in Lebanon. <laughs> Maybe sometime in the early afternoon after a nap. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is nice. Is it going to build back up? Yes, it is. It's stirring again. I have to say, that's in my top five. That was a goodie. That was a goodie. I really like that. That's great. <laughs> Lebanon facts! Oh, hurts my throat doing that, you know. <laughs> Glad we didn't do this every couple of weeks. <laughs> okay, so there is a unique acoustic phenomenon in Lebanon. So there's a place called the Kadisha Valley, and uh, you can go there and you can shout into this valley and your voice will carry for over one kilometre. It's an effect that the uh, locals say is due to saintly or angelic powers. Oh, really? Yeah. So when you stand at the end, you're like, get milk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The oldest continuously inhabited city in the world is in Lebanon. It's called Byblos. And uh, it is located 20 miles from Beirut. It might have been occupied since the early Neolithic period, as far back as 10,000 years ago. I admire that commitment to location. I'm going to live here forever. (laughs) (laughs) Other Lebanese facts. Lebanon is ranked third in the world for the highest consumption of cigarettes. Right. Okay. Well, that must be an anxious nation. Yes, but it also has the highest number of public bank holidays each year. Not all bad being Lebanese. No, exactly. You get six. 16 public holidays throughout the year. National Smoke Constantly Day. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. You know how we're, like, out of office for this episode? Yeah. Well, what office is it exactly that we're out of? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I know we have the HHE studio, but where's the HHE office? Well, there isn't an office. It's just something people say when they're not working. It's an expression that lets everyone know we're on holiday. Oh, right. I thought we had an office somewhere. I, I, I didn't know where it was. Like a, a secret office or something. No, don't be daft. Uh, you think I'd hire an entire office and fill it with comfy chairs and high-end computers and hire a team of people to do all the research for me and put a lovely Italian espresso machine in the corner by the window and not tell you about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose, now that you say it like that. I mean, you really think I'd go out of my way to have a whole security team just to keep you out? No, I, I just thought... I mean, know, frankly, I'm offended. The idea that I would enter into a 12-month rental agreement on a downtown warehouse loft conversion with incredible views of the city and a small outside terrace for drinks and snacks... It's just out of order, Ryan. I'm sorry, Pete. Oh, it's fine. Look, no problem. Just don't mention it again, eh? All right. Yeah, sure. Look, can I make you a cup of coffee or something? No, no. I just had a lovely Italian espresso in the office. In the office? Uh, It's just an expression. It means uh, a coffee shop around the corner. Oh, right. Oh, you're an idiot. What? That's just an expression, Ryan. All 
right, Pete, how are you feeling? Are you feeling oriented? I think I know where I am. Well, that's good because I don't know when we are. Ah. So why don't you give me some history? Well, I can help with that. The history of Lebanon. Well, it's something of a central place. It's appeared in a number of the major empires and histories that we've talked about in other episodes, actually. But let's start, as ever, with our good friend, Early Man. Early man! At Xar Akil Archaeological Site, about 10 kilometres, 6 miles outside Beirut, in 1938, archaeologists found a skeleton and a skull of a Homo sapiens. Ooh. They christened the body Egbert, uh, and they estimated <laughs> Egbert was a 7 to 9 year old female. 79 or 729? 729, it was a child. Right, okay. But as well as being 7 to 9 years old, it is also 43,000 years old, or Upper Paleolithic. Wow, that's that's amazing. That's a long time ago. Yeah. That is proper early man. Very much early man and not a million miles from your site of a continuous occupation, it should be observed. Yeah, very good point. Okay, and they were also found in an area with a lot of flint flakes. Was that their breakfast? Suggesting that this was an area of, I hesitate to say industry, but uh, stoneworking activity at the very least. Didn't get my breakfast reference there then. Do it again and I'll enjoy it this time. <laughs> flint flakes. I'm like, was that their breakfast? It was a joke about cornflakes. Oh, that was good, like a Flintstones breakfast cereal. Move on. Brilliant stuff. That's, <laughs> no, it's top draw stuff, Ryan. <laughs> That's why people tune in. <laughs> Fast forward to the Bronze Age. People in the area were cultivating land, they developed societies, and they even developed an alphabet so that they could play Scrabble. Really? Well, I've added the Scrabble bit. I'll okay, <laughs> right. I was, was going to say. <laughs> but it did develop into a coastal maritime empire known as the Phoenicians, who we have come across a couple of times before. They're the fun Phoenicians. The fun Phoenicians. You can't mm. spell Phoenician without fun. Uh, <laughs> they were going strong from about 2000 BC to about 500 BCE. They got absorbed first into the Persian Empire, where we met them when we talked about the Persians. And yep. then afterwards, they were taken over when Alexander the Great kind of took the whole area over. He got the Phoenicians in with the gig. Saudations. Exactly, the uh, yeah. Miserolations. But the gig was truly up around 64 BCE when the Romans moved in. There was a big war with uh, General Pompey and they won and they became a Roman state. Romans like to take over things. They did do that. But then as do the Muslims who in the 7th century, they come around the area and it becomes part of the Umayyad Caliphate, which we've talked about in a few different episodes, I believe. We have the Umayyad, yeah. And the 11th century brought the Crusades, which we've also talked about uh, when we were in Malta and various other places. The Crusades, as we know, were big in the region as a whole and it was back and forth and back and forth until the 13th century when the Muslims were back on top, this time under the Mamluks of Egypt. Everyone's having a bit of a go. They are, because they were then replaced by the Ottomans in 1416. And then, as we've seen before numerous times, the Ottomans are around for ages and they actually keep mm. hold of the place until World War One. That's astonishing to me. It's a really long empire, isn't it? Yeah. But it ends at the end of World War One. Enter the French who take over in 1919, where it becomes kind of put together with Syria as a French-controlled region. Oh, right. Okay. And so it goes until World War Two, And actually, it was the year 1943 when Lebanon becomes an independent state. So actually, okay. during World War to you. Now, there's disruption in the Middle East in general. It's complex and extensive. So I'll just say disruption. And it's a volatile mix of religions, national interests. There's a lot of Palestinian refugees and fighters who decamp to Lebanon. And all of this eventually results in civil war breaking out in Lebanon in 1975. And that civil war lasted until 1990, which includes our year of 1984, which I suspect may come up later. Now, the civil war is incredibly complex, Ryan. The belligerence section in the Wikipedia page has over 15 different sides 
Craigslist listed. So, <laughs> so buckle up, everyone. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a thing. There are religious divisions. You've got Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, Maronite Christians and Druze people. You've got political groups. You've got the Palestinian Liberation Organization. You've got Hezbollah. You've got national groups. You've got Syria and Israel getting involved. It also features the USA, who for a while sent a force to try and stabilise the situation, along with French and Italians to support. So a lot was going on during this civil war. It was a very complex affair and it was pretty rough on everybody, really. It featured assassinations of various leaders and there was just a general air of instability and chaos. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, exactly. So things came to a close in 1989 with the Taif Agreement, which was ratified on November 4th. Uh, on November 5th, President René Mouad was elected. On November 22nd, President René Mouad was assassinated. Wait, what? How many days? He lasted, uh, it was the 5th to the 22nd, so 17 wow. days. Oof. But despite this setback, that was just to give a tone of quite how disrupted this period was. Actually, yeah. by about 1991, a sort of peace kind of breaks out and things stabilise a little bit. There was another prime minister assassinated in 2005, but that time that triggered a period of popular demonstrations known as the Cedar Revolution. This was largely in protest of the Syrian, the ongoing Syrian presence in Lebanon. But then there were counter-protests led by the Hezbollah organisation, which were in support of Syria. So a mix of demonstrations on either side of the we like Syrians to around or not, depending on which side you choose. Yeah. That said, 2005, the Syrian troops do leave Lebanon, but it's still a lot of bad news to be had if you're Lebanese. So in March 2020, the country defaulted on 90 billion dollars of debt wow yeah exactly not it's a lot it caused the collapse of the lebanese pound and a profound financial crisis so you said banking but they are struggling in the realms of banking so uh not great for lebanese bankers at the moment this was exacerbated of course 2020 by the challenge of covid which was rocking the whole world at the time yeah. and it was made worse still in 2020 when the massive explosion rocked the capital Beirut. This was a massive, massive explosion. It was a result of poorly stored ammonium nitrate in a warehouse on the docks. It led to 218 deaths, 300,000 people being made homeless and $15 billion in property damage. One explosion. It was so powerful, the blast was heard in Cyprus, about 240 kilometres, 150 miles away. It's one of those that, you know, stands in my memory as being one of the more shocking videos that I've seen. You know, it's just truly mind-blowing how big that thing is. Exactly. And for many people, it's also illustrative of the kind of failure of the state in general. You know, it wasn't stored properly. A fire broke out. So not only was it a hugely damaging event, it was potentially an avoidable one caused by the problems that Lebanon is experiencing. So it's tough times in Lebanon. Uh, I'd say this is summarised by a World Bank report I found in November. 22, which was for nearly three years, Lebanon has been assailed by the most devastating multi-pronged crisis in its modern history. Blimey. So I'd like to end these things on a positive note, Ryan, but I don't have one right now other than to say that everything I've read about the people and the place is that it's a hospitable and beautiful place to visit. So I can only hope that things improve for Lebanon in the future. I've got to say, when you got to, and in 2005, I thought, well, we're going to be wrapping this up soon. <laughs> I thought, well, yeah, we're near, we're near modern day. So turns out, not so much. They got busy in the recent past doing lots of things. None of them good, unfortunately. But uh, I've got, I'm crossing my fingers because it sounds like a place that's really warm and inviting and nice. So I don't know. I, I really hope they can get themselves together and improve matters as soon as possible. Absolutely. Hey everyone, it's Ryan here from HHE Podcast. 
Sorry to say, but we couldn't think of an appropriate sketch for this section, what with all the general gloominess and doominess. So we thought, you know, a moment of Lebanese mindful meditation would be good for us all. You know, before we go into the next section. So sit back, close your eyes, and breathe deeply. Unless you're driving or operating heavy machinery, in which case, please stay alert and awake. Thanks, and enjoy. So, Pete, do you want to know about 1984? I do, but I'd like to know why, why have we just got one year? That's very unusual for us, isn't it? Yeah, it is pretty unique. And that is because the Dursalator tends to give us ranges in dates. Uh, but this 1984 has been added, much like 2001, because of its significance in popular culture. In the case of 1984, we're of course referring to the dystopian novel 1984, written by British author George Orwell. It was originally published in 1949 and not 1984, uh, but it is considered widely to be one of the most influential and widely read novels of the 20th century, and it's become something of a bit of a byword for oppressive totalitarian regimes and the threat of government overreach into the lives of its citizens. Ah, of course, yes, an iconic year. It's not just any old year. It's a very red-letter year, you might say. It is indeed. But let me tell you about the year itself. Please do. Okay. It's a period of 366 days. It was a leap year in 1984. Oh, really? So we get an extra day, yeah. And it took place in the decade of the 1980s. Ah, very much my formative decade, Ryan. This is the decade <laughs> that created me. <laughs> my goodness. It was the year before 1985 and the year after 1983. I'm really adding a lot here, Ryan. This is good stuff. <laughs> Thanks. I think people are learning stuff. <laughs> At time of recording in 2023, it was 39 years ago. Go. Feeling old yet, Pete? That that unnecessary. I don't just <laughs> edit that out. <laughs> In 1984, there were 4.7 billion people living on the planet. Ronald Reagan was serving his first presidential term in the United States. We are Americans. Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister in the United Kingdom. The ladies not. The Cold War is underway between the US and the Soviet Union. Apple launched their first desktop computer. Test drive a Macintosh. The first compact disc players and music CDs became available, with artists like Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, Madonna, Michael Jackson all taking their turns at top in the charts. It was a year of famous movies too, Pete, with The Karate Kid, Gremlins, Nightmare on Elm Street and The Terminator. I'll be back. That was a great year. The Summer Olympics are held in Los Angeles, the Winter Olympics in Yugoslavia. There are global charity efforts to help Ethiopia, which suffers from widespread famine. Meanwhile, McDonald's sells its 50 billionth hamburger. Good time, great taste of McDonald's. <laughs> 
It's the year that the wreck of the Titanic is found, Pete, and it's also the year that the board game Trivial Pursuit is released, becoming the biggest gaming sensation of the decade. Oh, I remember that. You're also missing the vital piece of history, which is the release of the seminal 1984 album by the Eurythmics, entitled 1984, which is the soundtrack to the film 1984, based on the book 1984, which was released in 1984. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's 1984. Let's move on. All right. So, Ryan, negotiation in Lebanon during 1984, a very specific topic, a very specific year. I think we got a little bit lucky on this topic, didn't we? Well, I suspect there are going to be some of our listeners going, yeah, sure, this came up randomly. (laughs) It really did. Like, we really do randomise every single episode. And this one did just happen to be negotiation in Lebanon during 1984. Rolled good for us, I think. Yeah, we did get lucky, it has to be said. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to get a search, shall I, Pete? Absolutely, go for it. Right, well, I'm going to start in 1979. That's incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll call it a preface. (laughs) This is the preface, yeah. Okay, good, because we have a postscript too, so that makes sense. Okay, so in our preface... It's 1979, and a bunch of armed Iranian students, they enter the US embassy in Tehran, and they hold 52 American diplomats and citizens hostage. The United States, under the leadership of then-President Jimmy Carter, they enter into negotiations with the students, but after a year of discussions, an agreement can't be reached, and the negotiations break down. Two years later, in 1981, Carter is voted out of office and a new administration, led by Ronald Reagan, takes over. And within minutes of his swearing in, literally minutes, Iran agrees to release the hostages. Wow. I feel there may have been some prep there. (laughs) Some people might say, what a coincidence. Uh, Others say that it might be deliberate, you know, a a deliberate slight on the outgoing Carter administration by the Iranians. While others suggest that Reagan's team had held their own backdoor negotiations with the Iranians, allegedly offering Iran several billion dollars in frozen assets and an assurance of non-interference going forwards. But that's politics, baby. (laughs) Whatever the reason, the hostages were finally released after a staggering 444 days. Wow. Now, following their release, Reagan wastes no time in denouncing Carter's attempts at negotiation. He vows a new approach for future situations by warning the world that America does not make deals with terrorists. Oh. And so, in this next section, we're going to see the repercussions of that policy and hear what impacts a government's refusal to negotiate can cause. Okay, carry on. I'm, I'm gripped and also delighted that we have covered different topics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. So, it's the morning of Tuesday 4th of May, 1984. Ah, we made it. We're in West Beirut and a husband and wife team leave their city apartment and step out onto the street. Meet Benjamin and Carol Weir. No relation. <laughs> I was going to say, if this is a family story, no one's going to believe this wasn't rigged. <laughs> yeah, amazing. No, Benjamin and Carol Weir. They are American missionaries from the Presbyterian Church, and they've been living in Lebanon for 31 years, working to bring the Protestant religion to the largely Muslim country. 
Yeah, because they need more religions in the area. (laughs) (laughs) Now, today they have an important appointment at the Near East School of Theology where they work. So their minds are kind of focused on getting there on time. But just as they head off down their street, a car pulls up next to them and two men get out. And for our audience, this is before Uber, so not necessarily good news. (laughs) Yeah, no, not at all good news, because Ben asks what they want, and they answer, we want you. Oh. So as Carol screams for help, Ben is forced at gunpoint into the backseat of the car, and he has a sack pulled over his head. Carol stands by the side of the road, watching in shock as the car takes off and disappears around the corner. Well, what would you do, Pete? I guess I'd phone the embassy or the cops, depending on who I trusted more. Right. Well, that's the thing. In these days, no mobile phones, right? So you've got to rush to the police station rather than make a call. (laughs) Yes, of course. And that's what Carol does. She rushes to the police station. She says, help, my husband has been kidnapped. And they go, sure, fill out this form, please. (laughs) So she fills out the form and they go, yeah, I'm sure he'll be fine. So this doesn't give her a whole deal of confidence that anything's going to happen to get her husband back, right? So she leaves the station and she decides to call the American embassy. Ah, I was on the right track. Right, you were indeed. So she speaks directly with the deputy chief of mission and she is told, what do you expect? We can't keep our own personnel safe from kidnapping. Right. That makes the form the most reassuring aspect of the experience so far. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It wasn't really reassuring, (laughs) but it was actually sadly accurate because hit lists and kidnappings of Americans had escalated in recent years, culminating in the bombing of the embassy itself in 1983, just the year before, which had killed 63 people and wounded hundreds of others. So the embassy had been warning Americans living in Lebanon to leave the country on multiple occasions and... And Carol and Ben had decided to stay. Got to spread the word of God. Got to spread the word. You've got a job to do. Now, regardless, the embassy did say that they were going to then inform the US State Department and get word out to reporters. Meanwhile, Ben has been driven across the city for hours. He's been blindfolded. He's been taken out of the car, locked inside of a small metal coffin until he was then carried across the city and then taken out and searched and interrogated and then taken to a second location where he was then chained inside of a small and dirty cell. Every day he undergoes interrogations, often with a pistol to his head, as his captors try to establish how much political influence he has. That's a tricky situation. Is it worse or better to have some leverage at that point? Yeah. Now, this continues for weeks. And between the interrogations, the lack of food and drink and the poor hygiene, every night Ben goes to sleep telling himself, you made it through another day. Now find strength for the next one. As the months pass, Carol grows increasingly desperate. She asks her church to help apply pressure on the politicians, and eventually she is finally granted an audience with the American ambassador, who promises that a special envoy from the United States are already conducting an investigation. It's good news, right? Yeah, it's moved on from the form, at least. It has. But months pass, and no progress is made. In July, Carol is contacted by a Muslim friend of hers who confirms that he's heard along the grapevine that Ben is being held by a group of Shiite extremists that are influenced by the recent revolution in Iran and has promised to release Ben only if 17 of their group are released from prison. So Carol takes this information quickly to the ambassador, but he sort of turns her away, quoting the party line that the US will not negotiate with terrorists. 
Meanwhile, just as Carol's friend described, Ben is now being forced by his captors to write a letter demanding the release of those 17 Shiite prisoners in exchange for his own life. He's then made to read it in front of a camera, and the video is sent to the US authorities, who, following orders, simply ignore it. Now, this angers the extremist because as time goes on, guards are yelling at him saying, why does no one ask about you? Why does your government have nothing to say? I guess they have one thing to say, and that's we don't negotiate with terrorists. It's a classic dilemma, isn't it? Exactly. So eventually they tell Ben to write to anyone else who will respond or else he's going to be killed. Wow. So... Dear mum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so another video is sent, but this time he addresses it to the clerk of the Presbyterian Church. Now, luckily for Ben, they don't ignore the message. And two days later, Carol is sat in front of a TV screen in the embassy, watching her long-haired husband reading his captor's demands. Well, he is alive. You must be very happy, the ambassador says. He's a warm, empathetic human, isn't he? <laughs> yes, and he confirms that uh, despite the official stance of non-negotiation, there were attempts underway at some quiet diplomacy, in quotes, to resolve matters. But this wasn't true, Pete. <laughs> or, at least, or at least there's no evidence of that. <laughs> because as the Assistant Secretary for Near Eastern and South Asian Affairs later told Carol, no one knows who had Ben, where he was, and any exchange for 17 prisoners was well beyond anything the United States would be willing to negotiate. Wow. So what they meant is they sent a couple of people out in the streets going, Ben? Ben? <laughs> Anyone got Ben? <laughs> no? All right. Oh, All right. We, we did everything we could. <laughs> <laughs> and so, super disappointed that her country is essentially abandoning her husband to his fate, Carol grows assertive. She decides to take matters into her own hands, Pete, and so she undertakes a new approach of political lobbying of her own. She flies to Damascus in Syria to make a personal appeal to the Syrian foreign minister, who offers to help, saying that Ben might be released if she could secure help from the famous American pastor, Reverend Jesse Jackson. So she reaches out to Jackson's team, and uh, Jackson agrees to go to Damascus to collect Ben. Great news. But in December, a hijacked plane at Tehran airport results in the deaths of two American officials, and the plans are scrapped. Instead, Ben spends Christmas alone, locked in his cell, eating a sandwich off a dirt floor. In January, he's taken to another location, again locked up in cramped conditions. Nearly a year has passed, and Carol is unable to shift the State Department's hardline approach to negotiations. And so, losing faith, she decides to do the one thing she has been told not to do, talk to the public. And so, along with the wives of 16 other kidnapped hostages... Carol goes to a network television and she gives her first press conference. Now, from this interview, a remarkable thing happens, Pete, and you probably won't guess what it is. Everyone gets released and everyone holds hands and sings kumbaya. <laughs> that isn't what happened. No. <laughs> What happened was, American Muslim and former world heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali decides to step in and try to help. I would not have guessed that, you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he travels to Beirut, a crowd gathers to greet him, they raise their fists in the air and they shout in Arabic, and in a show of solidarity, Ali raises his fist too. Unfortunately, the crowd had been shouting, death to Americans. And so the image... <laughs> 
<laughs> and so the image of Muhammad Ali with his fist raised at calls of death to Americans did more damage than good. And any subsequent appeals that he made for the release of the hostages just went unanswered. <laughs> yeah. So with no further progress, in February now, Carol realises she has no option but to go directly to Washington. So sadly, having to leave her husband behind in Lebanon, she flies all the way to the United States. Arriving in Washington, she tries to obtain a meeting with the Secretary of State, but was passed instead to an underling. She showed them Ben's letter, and they claimed it was the first they'd heard about it, and repeated that, yeah, quiet diplomacy is probably our best option. I've had dealings with uh, electricity companies of similar magnitude of, what do you mean, you've got no record of this, but I would hope in matters of life and death you didn't have the same administrative problems. <laughs> yeah. So she arranges another press conference, and at this one she says that, and I quote, the government has told me that they are working carefully and slowly. I have told them that I will accept carefully, but not slowly. <laughs> ah, nice. That's a good phrase. Yeah, it's good. So this public criticism is enough to get Carol in a room with the actual Secretary of State now, a guy called George Schultz, who explains that the situation is difficult, Mrs. Weir. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> so the extremists, he says, they're crazy. They're deranged. They're unable to be negotiated with. He even bangs his fists on the table and shouts at her saying, these are a pagan and primitive people. Oh, yeah. He ends the meeting abruptly, saying again that the United States will not negotiate with terrorists. That didn't feel like the sensitive handling you would hope for. The banging the fists on tables, you yeah, mean. Yeah, that in particular stands out, yes. Yeah. So what does Carol do? She leaves the meeting and immediately holds another press conference. Go Carol! <laughs> Go Carol I, I am Team Carol all the way here. <laughs> so newspapers, radio, television, loads of interviews follow. And soon Carol is in front of cameras, microphones all over the country. The Presbyterian Church helps to turn up the pressure too. They endorse a nationwide campaign where their followers are asked to send pleas to the White House written on postcards. This postcard campaign was so successful, in fact, that the White House had to recruit three additional secretaries to handle the millions of cards being received wow. and eventually forced the White House to make an official plea to the church to stop sending the postcards. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what the church responded with? More postcards! <laughs> when the hostages are released, we'll stop the cards. Ah, uh, well, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. So, after the postcard campaign, Carol starts a Free the Hostages campaign, where people start to wear yellow ribbons, something which senators and state representatives across America start to wear too. And by July of 1986, Carol has travelled to London, met with global politicians, even organised an eight-part television series to shed light on the plight of the hostages. But months are dragging on, Pete. Lots of pressure has been applied, but President Reagan still refuses to negotiate. And Carol feels like she's exhausted all of her options. Meanwhile, Ben, back in Lebanon, continues to suffer at the hands of his captors. He's been moved five times now, with his last transport being the most terrifying. Get this. He's had explosives placed in his pockets. Then he's been wrapped from head to foot in sticky tape with just enough space to breathe through his nose, then squashed into the back of a van and driven for several hours down a long road full of potholes such that at any moment he thought that the explosives might go off. Oh, my Lord. 
On the plus side, though, on Ramadan, they did give him a hamburger and a Pepsi. So, you know. (laughs) Ups and downs, we can call that. (laughs) But on 15th of September, Carol receives a phone call. It's from the White House. Ooh. Yeah. Now, expecting the worst, Carol picks up and hears he's been released and he's coming home. 495 days had passed since Benjamin Weir had been kidnapped. 16 months of terrible confinement. And Ben's captors had sort of just grown weary of not having had any contact from the US administration. So they decided to offer up one of the hostages as a sign of goodwill, and they'd chosen Ben. And so a guard came to Ben and told him that he was being released. He had his beard trimmed. He was led to a car and told to get out when it stops and not to look back. So doing as he told, when the car stopped, he got out and the car sped off. He removed his blindfold and he found himself at midnight in a familiar street in Beirut. So he walked to a friend's home. He used their phone to contact the American embassy. A vehicle came for him the next day with four armed men. They gave him a gun and told him to use it if he needed to, then drove to the embassy where he met with the ambassador. The ambassador refused his request to call Carol, saying that it was best to just keep things quiet for a few days. A large helicopter arrived and he was flown to an aircraft carrier where he was given a full medical and signed off as medically fit. Then he was flown to Sicily, where he transferred to a cargo plane, and he arrived in East Virginia a day later. There he was met by several CIA agents who drove him to a motel, and as the door opened, Carol was on the other side, waiting for him. They hugged and kissed, and in Ben's own words, he said, It was wonderful to be back. Wow, I don't doubt it was wonderful to be back. That is an amazing story of kind of not negotiation, but absolutely within our brief. That was uh, quite the story, Ryan. That was an amazing journey. Do you want to know the postscript? Please do. Okay, so 20 minutes after their hug, the phone rings and President Reagan is on. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And he tells Ben that he was so happy you're safely back with your family. We've been praying for your safe return. (laughs) Oh, so they didn't do nothing then. There was some praying. (laughs) So Ben simply said... I have a message I want you to hear. This is what he said. This is all he said. I have a message I want you to hear. First, my captors have told me that they expect you to release their 17 men. Second, they want me to tell you that I have been released as a sign of their good intention to resolve this issue. There was silence. And then Reagan finished reading from his script and Ben hung up the phone. (laughs) Two months later, Ben receives a telegram from President Reagan, which says, Reverend Weir, The long-standing policy of our government has been to make no concessions to the demands of terrorists. I firmly believe in that policy. To do otherwise is to encourage additional acts of terrorism and place many more Americans at risk. All of the extensive efforts your government has undertaken to obtain your release and the release of all the other American and foreign hostages in Lebanon have been fully consistent with that policy. My efforts to protect our broader interests in the Middle East and achieve the release of the remaining American and other foreign hostages will and must continue. I know you agree, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Oh, honestly, I've got sympathy with what he's saying, but the envelope of the message could be a lot warmer, like, I'm terribly sorry this impacted you personally. It didn't sound like there was any of that. It was just like, this is the policy and you, thanks for your support. (laughs) I know you agree with it. So yeah, so of the remaining hostages that Ben had to leave behind... American priest Lawrence Martin Jenko, he was released in 1986 due to medical reasons. Three Soviet diplomats were released in 1986 too, with one of them being killed by his captors while the others were let go. 
American journalist Charles Glass, he escaped in 1987. Algeria negotiated for the release of French hostage Marcel Carton in 1988. In the late 1980s, several other hostages escaped and the remaining French hostages were negotiated for. And the remaining hostage, American journalist Terry Anderson, was held until 1991. Six years after his kidnapping, when his captors finally released him as a result of the United States' persistent refusal to negotiate. Wow. There's a lot to talk about there, and I very much look forward to the verdict. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Tell me yours, Pete. All right. After this. Ahmed, you'll never believe what's happened. What is it, Yusuf? The Americans have been in touch. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And they said they're willing to give us $10 million for the hostage. Well, praise Allah, that is a lot of money. I know, I know. So, obviously, I turned them down. You did what? I said thanks, but no thanks. Why? But then the weirdest thing happened. They offered even more money. $20 million for the hostage. God be praised. Yeah, so I turned that down too. God be what? I said no. But why are you turning away so much money? Well, it's, as you said, brother, it's so much money. I'm not with you. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's very generous of them, but we just don't need all of that, do we? What are we going to do with $20 million? Oh, there are loads of things we could do with $20 million. Yusuf, we could buy weapons, we could lobby politicians. Yeah, 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 yachts, big screen TVs, I get it, but we don't really need all those things to be happy, do we? I think they'd help. I mean, I know our makeshift basement prison is a little dark and depressing, but it's our little dark and depressing makeshift underground prison. But it's not about us, it's about making a difference. The truth is, Ahmed, these years of travelling and hiding, kidnapping and negotiations, they've just been some of the most fulfilling of my life. I've never felt so vibrant, so alive. Does it really have to end? Well, one way or another, I really think it does, Yusuf. I mean, what are we going to do with him? We could start a new life, Yusuf. Forget about money and politics and governments and death threats. Just you and me on a little farm with goats and a nice cosy basement for him. But I don't want a farm, Ahmed. I want to defeat the decadent West and earn my place in heaven. What is heaven, Yusuf, if not friendship? A simple life. Hello, you've reached Ahmed and Yusuf's phone. How can I help you? Uh-huh. Oh, right. Okay. Yep, that's very interesting. Well, thank you very much. We'll get back to you. Was that the Americans? Yes, it was. And? Well, they said their final offer is $50 million or they're going to send special forces round to kill a stone dead. Oh, right. Should we take the money then? Yeah. But what about the farm? Quite you. I was looking forward to the farm. Shut it. So, Ryan, I mentioned in the history section that the United States had intervened in an attempt to stabilise the situation in Lebanon, the civil war with all the different people fighting each other. So my story is about influencing decisions. So it's not negotiating as directly as you were talking about negotiating, but it's how do you influence people and change their mind, which I consider to be negotiation. So pretty much everything I'm going to say comes from an article in the Texas National Security Review, which is a journal. But first, I'll tell you the standard narrative of what happened in this period in the Lebanon. So the idea is the civil war was happening. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan sent American troops to try and keep the peace in Lebanon. 
Then there was a very big bombing of a marine barracks that led to a lot of American lost lives. And the loss of these lives and the pressure at home caused Reagan to change his mind. And in 1984, the American troops were withdrawn. That's the standard story that you will read about and have told when you read the history of this period in Lebanon. Okay. So in negotiating terms, that would seem to suggest that violence is a useful and effective strategy in negotiations. However, this article in the Texas National Security Review suggests that although the fact is the troops were withdrawn, that is a thing that happened, they suggest that the bombings were not in fact the drivers of the decision and if anything, the violence only entrenched the Americans, which was actually split in people who were for and against the intervention in Lebanon. So what actually happened? President Reagan sent US Marines to Beirut as part of a multinational force. There was France and Italy as well. And that was partly to keep the peace during the civil war, but also there was an invasion by Israel. US Marines arrived on August the 25th, 1982, having agreed to stay for just 30 days. And they actually stayed for less than that, less than 20 days. They withdrew on September the 10th, 1982, under a banner that read, Mission Accomplished, Farewell. That sounds familiar. It does, doesn't it? Well, a banner with mission accomplished written it, on it. Indeed, and familiarly, four days after that, the pro-Christian Lebanese president was assassinated. Another four days later, the Christian forces entered camps in Sabra and Shatila and massacred between 460 and 3,500 Palestinians and Lebanese Shiite Muslim civilians. So it was a big massacre. That's incredible. Absolutely terrible. So clearly the peace had not been kept in any way. So Ronald Reagan decides to send the Marines back again. The Texas National Security Review says, quote, determined to dispel the memory of Vietnam and confident in what he saw as Americans' unique obligation to promote peace abroad, Reagan envisaged the troops playing an indispensable role in promoting a lasting peace in Lebanon. That was the plan. Okay, yeah. So the Americans are there. They're supporting the Lebanese Armed Forces, which is the kind of government power, the legitimate army, if you like, of the Lebanon, which is the idea is if these guys have control, that is stability and that will bring everything to a calm situation. But on April 18th, 1983, a suicide bomber crashed a truck into the front of the US embassy, you mentioned, in Beirut. That exploded and that was a massive blast. It killed 63 people, including 17 Americans. That's the one we were talking about. exactly the one, yeah. Side note, eight of those Americans were CIA officers So that bombing was the greatest single loss of life the CIA has ever experienced. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I can see why it caused such a fuss and why they told everyone to get out of Lebanon. Well, that was just the start of it. There was more clashes in August and September, more US Marines dead. Now, the standard narrative suggests the US was losing heart at all of this. But actually, according to the Texas National Review, it appears the two camps in the US for and against intervention simply became more entrenched in their positions. The anti-intervention camp, included the Defence Secretary Caspar Weinberger, just thought this was more evidence that the intervention couldn't work. He said there was no military action that could succeed. Whereas the pro-intervention camp argued the conflict was still a historic opportunity and that considering withdrawal was to risk, quote, US's credibility as a great power. And in fact, they were suggesting sending more troops. So actually, everyone's just hardening in their position, according to these sources. The idea was the Americans support the Lebanon Defence Forces as the legitimate authority. So there was all these different militia, all fighting. You had Syrians, you had Israelis, all of different sides. But if you could establish a government, essentially, and that government having its own armed force as the dominant controlling secure force that will bring some stability and start to calm everything down basically instead of it being a mass of militias all fighting each other and at the same time then you've also helped install a government that's going to be supportive of you going forward also helpful absolutely So then on October 23rd, 1983, there's another truck bomb, a massive one that hits a marine barracks and this time causes the death of 241 Americans. 
Again, rather than changing minds, the Texas National Security View says it's simply entrenched, quote, advocates of the multinational force viewed the bombing as evidence for the need of a peacekeeping force. The Department of Defense interpreted the attack as a further confirmation that the Marines' objectives were unattainable. This reminds me of that thing that gamblers have, where you just keep putting more money down after a loss. That's exactly what they're saying. Whichever side you're on, the violence merely made you more on that side. People aren't changing their minds at all, contrary Mm. to the, the standard narrative that's put about this period. So for Reagan in particular, he was very pro-intervention. One of his government recalled, what the president did not want to do above all was to be seen as running away. To the contrary, the barracks bombing seemed to strengthen his resolve to stay. So he's happy to get involved when it involves the violence and the fighting, but not in negotiation. Well, I mean, this I guess it's all an element of appearing strong. You could argue that's the, the common theme is you look like you are projecting strength, not weakness. It's the Republican way. Exactly. So, uh, in fact, even when an election loomed in the US, public opinion was turning against the actions in Lebanon. One of his opponents characterised Reagan as trigger-happy and reckless, but Reagan still holds the course, saying to his allies that, quote, we're making more progress than appears on the surface. <laughs> okay. Right. So after everything that happened, one staffer commented about these two opposing factions in the US government. They said, one is optimistic in flavour. It assumes with a little perseverance, we will be able to achieve our broad objectives. The other is fundamentally pessimistic, assuming that the situation continues to be structured unfavourably. In other words, everyone is, after all the bombings and the killings, everyone is exactly where they started, only more so, if anything. But with a whole bunch of dead people. With more dead people, yes. So popular support for the action continues to plummet. Criticism on Capitol Hill mounts, but Reagan still won't move. He announces his re-election campaign on February the 2nd, 1984. He says, as long as there is a chance for peace, the mission remains the same. Adding that his critics, quote, may be willing to surrender, but I'm not. Again, it's this entrenched, I will not back down approach. Mm -hmm. So... In the face of attacks, the deaths of Marines and even sinking public opinion, Reagan didn't budge in his support for a plan in which the Lebanese armed forces with US support bring this stability, this supposed stability to Lebanon. It's interesting that you mention about this, about this needing to show a sign of strength, where we've got to remember that America and Reagan was also facing a Cold War with the Soviet Union at the time and so needed to demonstrate strength. It's all positioning. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, face to be saved here. But as I said at the start, the fact is the Americans were withdrawn in 1984. Uh, We know this. This is a fact. So what actually happened? So the main thing is that the Lebanese armed forces, who were the people the US was supposed to be propping up and were going to bring this stability, they collapsed, actually, and they were driven out of West Beirut, which meant the US was propping up nothing. There was no one to prop up. So that left their choices to replace that armed force. So massively more troops to be deployed or you withdraw. So without the Lebanese armed forces to give you that structure, Reagan chose to actually bring the troops home. So on February the 26th, 1984, the last company of US Marines left from Lebanon. I mean, we've had something similar happen recently, haven't we, with the US forces leaving Afghanistan? Yes, exactly. So to summarise, according to Texas National Security Review, at least, quote, the outcome of Reagan administration's deliberations in the months following the barracks bombing was in no way preordained by the scale of the Marines' losses or expectations of political backlash. Indeed, the Barracks bombing may have had the immediate counterintuitive effect of hardening the president's resolve. So realistically, if you're thinking of using violence to support your negotiations, maybe think again. Wow. 
Tricky stuff, isn't it, politics? It is a complex and difficult business. This could be a 20-hour podcast on 1984 and negotiation in the Lebanon, couldn't it? It's a, yeah. a, a heck of a time, a heck of a lot was going on, and it's very debatable. I can see both sides of all of these things. I understand projection of strength has a value and the perception of weakness is a thing. But also there comes a time where you are failing and you need to stop. Negotiating mm. with terrorists, I can see that you could potentially incentivize people if you release the first person. You go, ah, I can make my objectives by kidnapping more people it's really complex i don't pretend to have a strong idea one way or the other as to the rights and wrongs of the situation at all and in the end ultimately it's the people that suffer yeah at the end of the day lebanon could and should be such an amazing beautiful and thriving place and all of these things have really harmed everybody involved ultimately the chaos and the violence and the destruction everybody suffers and more than anybody it's the man on the street isn't it it really is I want to go to Lebanon. It looks lovely. I want to go hiking in the Lebanon. I do too. Uh, at least I did before I read the various embassy warnings about travel to Lebanon. <laughs> but yes, let's hope things settle down and we'll go check it out and uh, examine the cedars. doesn't matter, mate. They'll just do some quiet diplomacy and we'll be fine. Yeah, I don't want to be sellotaped up and driven around in a van. That's all I'm saying. With explosives strapped to you. Yeah. Not my idea of a good time. I've had some grim tours before, but nothing like that. Well, there you go, Pete. Well, look, those are our opinions on the matter. If you've got a thought on this, then why don't you let us know at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd be interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, we love to know your opinions. We are not experts, so uh, your opinion is as valid as ours. Colonel, the Mission Accomplished banner has been raised and our boys are ready to go home. Outstanding work, Sergeant. Just one question, sir. Go ahead, son. The men were just wondering why they all have return tickets. Ah, you noticed that, huh? We did, sir. Well, the simple truth is this. In 48 hours, we're shipping them back on another mission. Will it be anything like this mission, sir, by any chance? It will be, son. It will be. Understood. In fact, I'd go as far as to say it'll be exactly the same mission. Hoorah, sir. And don't throw that banner away, son. We'll be needing it again. Yes, sir. so that was a great show Ryan and that is it I'm afraid that is our show for this week normally we would dursalate the next episode but we already know what we're doing next and it is plumbing in the Himalayas in the 1950s which is one to look forward to yeah certainly <laughs> now if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on this show any of the interesting thoughts if you've got an opinion share it with us or you can just say hello by reaching out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or email us at pete and ryan at hhepodcast.com that's right we would love to hear from you and you never know you might end up featured on a future show and of course as ever if you're on mastodon instagram facebook or x you can find us at hhepodcast and if you subscribe to those you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content like facts we didn't use photos from the show and other bits and bobs we will be back again soon with the verdict but until then a huge thanks to you ryan and thank you to you Pete. and that is it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to history happened everywhere hey ryan hey pete Who's that guy in the garden? What guy? 
blonde fella. Oh, that's Sven. He's Swedish. He's a creep more like. He's been letting over the neighbour's wife. Oh, really? Yeah, he is a seedy Swede. And what's he doing in our garden anyway? Well, I've hired him to plant seeds for some cedar trees in honour of our Lebanon episode. So he's a cedar cedar? You could say that. In fact, he's a seedy Swede cedar cedar. Yeah, you're right. I bet he's a really fast worker, is he? You might even say that he's speedy. No, no, he's really slow. In fact, I'm going to sack him tomorrow. Oh, yeah. It would have been good if he'd been a seedy, speedy, sweedy, cedar, cedar. Well, he's not. Oh. In any negotiations, you give a little and you and you get a little. And, uh, and to, to attempt to weigh where you gave and where you got, you have to say the end result is satisfactory and we believe fair to all of us.